How are you doing this morning? This is a. Uh, uh, how are you? Uh, wait, <laughs> I just asked you how you were doing, and then proceeded to intro the podcast. Um, this is uh, Cameron and Brock are two people. The <laughs> podcast in which Cameron and Brock are two people. And it is. I'm um, the Brock one. Yeah, I'm Cameron. That's right. We should also do that. I don't. Uh, we haven't done that in forever. Um, let's. It is Wednesday, May 9th at seven thirteen in the morning. I almost it got. Is. I was almost there on time. It's not a coffee. Tuesday. It's a it's Wednesday. Not, or a yeah. Monday. No, wait. It was. We did it on Tuesday nights. Then Monday it's, mornings. Yeah. Monday morning is definitely the uh, the preferable time. Uh, Sunday night was long for me for a variety of reasons. And I, we decided that a podcast would, in which Cameron has less than four hours of sleep would be a, probably a bad podcast. Or a really good podcast. Yeah, I don't know. I'm a little curious, actually. Maybe we mm. should intentionally push through with that. Uh, I Man. All right. Well, we'll stick that in the plan hopper for later. Um, how are you doing? Uh, all right. Had a pretty good weekend out away at a beach place. And uh, like a farther beach place from your beach? Cause well, you live- a little bit, yes, actually a little bit further, but more like Navarre further. Oh, that's, yeah. Navarre but it is, is convenient uh, living in proximity to the beach in that way. Sure. I remember uh, when we were in high school going to the beach around the time that we got ravaged continually by hurricanes uh, and the beach would be washed more and more away. And the, were they, I can't remember if they were dredging and that was making it bad or if Navarro was the closest place they were dredging to make it good. Cause I don't really remember what dredging is. <laughs> I think you're referring to they send huge ships off of just off the coast and run a giant pipe that pumps sand from deeper off the coast into the beach area to rebuild the beaches that got washed out by the numerous hurricanes as you refer to them. Yeah, that's that's the that's the ticket. So that's that they, when they do that, it ruins the already very uh uh very slight sort of wave situation that the beach has. Um right? Yeah, in some places it was yeah, it was flattening it out a lot. Well, but yeah, but I that that was how it was reflected to me at the time or uh that was that's not the right verb. Uh but I remember us having to go farther and farther east as we went south from Pensacola over to Pensacola Beach and then drove east uh eventually to Navarre, which was a solid 45-minute drive or so. To get to anything resembling a wave. This yeah. is already the Gulf of Mexico in which waves are very hard to come by. Yes. It, whenever I mention, oh yeah, I surf or used to surf a lot growing up. It was, It's always the same. Wait, where do you live? <laughs> yeah. But people don't even necessarily know Pensacola, but somehow they have this innate sense that there's just not a lot of waves in the Gulf of Mexico, which is true, but they do occur uh, infrequently, but you just have to watch storm patterns and wave models, etc. Also, it's a beach break, 
meaning there isn't a very delineated point or um, underwater structure like a reef or any kind of rock outcroppings that create a break naturally in one spot and not another. Uh, so it's this uniform sort of breaking mass of waves. Uh, and it doesn't create a really good push one way or the other. And you got to swim straight through the break. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of challenges, but you know, it's possible. I remember, uh, you know, on occasion, I never owned a surfboard. I lived in Pensacola for, uh, I don't know, 11 years before going to college. And then I spent summers there. And then I lived in Jacksonville for six years, literally a mile or less from the beach, you know, like a short walk from the beach. Never owned a surfboard. I would borrow your surfboard and uh, one of your surfboards in Pensacola and semi-successfully, uh, you know, stand on it for a second or two. I never carved it down a wave. I did stand up, you know, <laughs> a few times here and there. You know, I, I don't d- recall I that I very strongly. Uh, for some reason, I don't recall you as a as as regular a beachgoer growing up. Is that true? I I mean, I. I went with y'all. I didn't go by myself pretty much at all. And uh, I, but your Josh was your was your surfing surfing boy. Oh, you you guys would get up at like three in the morning, boy. Hey, surfing boy, let's go to the beach. Um, yeah, Josh. I don't know. It's my wax. (laughs) It sounded a little. uh, relational or something surfing squire oh well i I mean he was the uh as far as i could tell he was the motivator for like he would i don't know he would get very wild-eyed right well as as much with anything if you get josh into something then you better be prepared to continue because he is a, a a true enthusiast he he loves the things he gets into which is pretty impressive but yes uh, I did rope him into it, and there were many waking each other up at 4 a.m. time frames because, as I mentioned before, waves were a rarity. And so if there was a swell coming or whatever, you were going to get out there. If you had work at 10 a.m., which he and I often did, we would just get out there whenever the sun came up. And then this also involves... Temperature not being a valid factor in whether or not you're going to go out. So, winter often has more swells. And though I do live in Florida, winter still involves like 55 degree water and 40 degree air. And so, there were, it's hard to imagine what motivated me to get up two hours before the sun rose and go to the water in the middle of the winter. But I think it was worth it. There's trips, wetsuits, bottles of hot water. I'm trying to remember if I ever wore one of your wetsuits because they were always in your trunk or if they were just around enough that I thought I think I must have worn them at least one time because I can't think of when else I would have worn a wetsuit and I think I've worn so a wetsuit. So you know you've worn a wetsuit. 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I whacked that uh, whatever it took to get up at four o'clock in the morning. And then I do what is uh, for those of our listeners who haven't surfed, which, by the way, thinking about surfing, I haven't thought about surfing in so many years. And like, I, it would never come up in Chicago. I, I think that like I, there are probably people who surf uh, like Michigan during a storm, but I. The, those people are probably kind of hard to come by. I haven't personally met any of them, so it's a little bit. It, it is an extremely they don't advertise. Uh, That's niche thing. of a niche up here, I guess. But anyway, um, yeah. So I, uh, I I lacked whatever it was that required one to do that, and I would go out with you guys. But a couple of things. Number one, surfing for the for those of of our listeners who have not surfed, uh, unless you are. Uh, on in in the regular ocean, which I did one time. By the way, I surfed one time in Jacksonville Beach in college, and it was so easy I couldn't believe it. That was the, I stood up on the board and, and I just like rode the board for like I don't know fifty feet or something, and I was like, this isn't even like I feel like I didn't even have to try. Like three of us were on the same wave. It was this this spring break. It was on spring break, and it was this idyllic spring break moment where we're all on boards going down, and we're like, "Yay, spring break!" <laughs> and like, I know I don't remember a wave lasting that long, like ever in Pensacola. Pensacola was this like jagged mass of waves when they did come, or otherwise, you just uh, my original point. A lot of waiting. There's a lot of waiting involved in um, surfing, they- and a lot of work. Yeah, you do have to have a general love for being out in the water. Maybe nature generally, but I loved being in the water and just the whole thing. And so you'd be out there a lot. It was incredibly uh, difficult to to get out there and strenuous, especially if it was a big day because, like I said, you can't – paddle around where it's breaking because a lot of times if there's like so there are some features in Pensacola Beach where it generates more of a wave than others but mostly it's uniform so everywhere the waves break they break for miles in either direction so you have to go straight through it you can't go around the worst breaking part so paddling out was its own art in Pensacola you sort yeah, of had that you might could find a quote unquote rip current. It's sort of where the beach um, water V's into the shoreline and the water um, washes up, sort of presses together in the middle of the V and pushes back out, which is, of course, the thing you're warned against. But, you know, if you're trying to get out, then that's not yeah. the story. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's like uh, if you if you're prepared, then that's probably awfully nice. I remember seeing uh, our um, our Latin teacher, uh, Professor Schuler, yeah, who's been, come up on the podcast once before, and uh, he we saw him with his big big giant surfboard, big long boy, uh, and uh, and he dove into the water. And then did the thing where you go upside down with the surfboard and go like directly under the wave and keep going. And I was very impressed at the time. I had not seen a, I had not seen that uh, particular maneuver, and b that that man got way out there really fast. And I remember like uh, you know, for me, surfing was mostly like 
attempting to get out far enough to <laughs> attempt to surf and then fail. And then sort and of then, halfway giving up by taking a giant crashing wave in the middle of the zone, break zone. Right. It'd be like uh, if you went to a water park and the goal was to go down the water slide in a certain way. So every time you went down the water slide, uh, you had to run back up like seven flights of stairs to the top. That's kind of what surfing feels like. It's the... Uh, you, I, I yeah. that's sort of accurate. It definitely undersells the experience. I think all of this sure. is to say <laughs> that all all of these hardships are definitely the case. But there's something about when you actually end up doing it and the feeling involved there you're just like I have to do it again and Everything else is seems totally worth it. So you should try it. Everyone, try surfing. That's right. I, uh, the other thing about surfing, before we get, I guess we probably get off this topic, is uh, um, the board that I usually had to use was the one that was like, I, was it your mom's board? That was very. Was uh, it like the five foot dually, meaning two yeah, fins on the bottom? I think it was yellow and very thick. It was not one when one thinks of a surfboard, one usually does not think of a something that's kind of shaped a lot like your bar of soap before you need to just get a new bar of soap. You know, <laughs> a very sort of like uh lozenge like short lozenge shape and it's probably four or five inches thick. Um I just remember that board being kind of stubby and thick and hard to use. And then you got some other board that was red and was like way better, and it was all cool, and it looked like a real cool guy surfboard. <laughs> I don't; these colors and descriptors are slightly off, but I definitely think I'm following you. What? Uh, the, I I, I have a photographic out, memory, sir. It, yes. Not. So let's live in Cam's reality. <laughs> Yay! No, I'm I'm I take it back. <laughs> Skype regression technology activate. Oh, I was so close. Uh, yeah, I started out using my mother's old board. Was that true? Man, I don't I know. Don't... I don't know. I think I <laughs> somehow we acquired a board. Um, no, at maybe at a garage sale. But anyway, it was a very short dually, which means it had two fins, and its shape was lozenge like it was not something that anyone had made for decades because it's an inefficient unusable shape almost you're telling me yeah there you go and mm. i knew no surfers um or i don't you know do you have to be cool to surf i don't know but i didn't know any cool people but i loved the water and we'd be at the beach so i just go out there on this absurd looking piece of equipment. Like not even the people who wanted to be ironic and use old school looking stuff would have used this. They were like, is that, what is this guy using? And, and I just hang out there by myself and watch what the other surfers did and how they actually did surfing. And I just sort of imitate it. And it was, Crazy, but then the first time that I stood up and the wave was pushing me and I was standing up and I could like see through the water 
and I was traveling over the water, and it was like a whole new perspective on being out in the water, lots of waters. Mm. And, like, that was it. I was like, this is a thing. And so then eventually I did get a fancy board. It was yellow. The first one was (laughs) off-white. The next one was much longer, uh, yellow, trifin, sort of like, imagine if you made a short board really long. And so it was sort of like a mix because you could be, it's a little more maneuverable, but you could uh, also ride tiny waves because if there's tiny waves, you need a very large board to get going on them. I see. But anyway. It was full of tiny waves. Yeah. It was worth it. Uh, surfing. I man, <clears throat> I hadn't thought I hadn't thought in a long time about that other the other detail there, which is I was, you know, fourteen or fifteen. Eh, we were probably a little older because we were driving to the beach. But uh, there was that uh you get out on the goofy little I I, I guess off white board that makes it seem even more like a large bar of soap um and uh and you're out past the break it's very quiet and sometimes there's other people out there and they're usually were they were usually like uh older cool surf mans and uh i remember feeling silly and like being like great i went out into the ocean past the break i'm like one side of me is in effectively infinite water and there's still social anxiety out of here <laughs> <laughs> I went, I you went would out think here. You could escape, <laughs> right? It's not like I. I it's like if you we went hiking, and as you were hiking, all of a sudden there's like some really well, there's like a lumberjack looking hiking dude like that just walks next to you the whole time. It's like, <laughs> but I came out here for solitude, or you know, and no, there's a little club out past the break. You know, it's true. I will say, surfers are generally nice, but. It seems to be within a framework of their culture. Like they will say that they're a friendly group, but you have to accept the tenets of their group and especially understand the courtesies involved in surfing or who would get a wave or how you position yourself. And so, yeah, I had this similar anxiety because I wasn't, I, I didn't desire to be part of that group necessarily i just it was an engaging activity so yeah that (laughs) that was not my favorite part although a lot of them are pretty cool Uh, oh i mean good go no no new you oh we forgot the other main source of waves in pensacola which is tropical storms and hurricanes i mean that was a real tradition i i i uh was Going to take this one of two directions. I'm going to write down the other direction just so I don't forget. Uh, hold on. Enthusiasts adjacent. Man, I really picked a lot of long words to write um, while I'm trying to talk. All right. Um, so the tropical storm situation, indeed, right? So like with Pensacola, mostly no waves, uh, very few waves. I remember you guys being so excited when it was like thigh high. And this was pre- 
this is going to date us somewhat, but I remember calling the number instead of like checking a website because you're you have a phone on you, but your phone isn't going to check a website. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. Oh no! So like you uh you would call the like uh the voicemail box of the um of the surf shop, and they would some dude would be like looking like uh, hi out there, and you'd be like sweet and so we'd run down there but the uh when the a hurricane hit all of a sudden waves were like over six feet tall um i remember and this was only for like two days before the hurricane actually hit and the waves got terrifying uh and dirty and gross um and then the hurricane hit but the uh i remember going out with a boogie board because the waves were so big i knew i would probably die uh, <laughs> if i had a surfboard do you remember this particular day? Because there was a um, the 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 shared event uh, that I remember is we uh, all noticed a guy break bring two halves of a surfboard onto the beach out of the oh, water. Oh, I didn't know and, you were there. Yeah, I remember that. And then he brought back two more halves later on. Like that guy jacked up two surfboards in a, a space of about forty five minutes. Oh, did this guy also have a bleeding gash on his head? Oh, maybe. Gosh, I don't... Because mm, I, what, it, I may be remembering two distinct events, which yeah. is also terrifying. But yes, I do remember that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that guy was out there like like splitting surfboards in half. And I went out on a boogie board um, because the waves were really big and that was super fun. And I went... Uh, I did something that uh, you shouldn't do when you're on a boogie board. So a boogie board, you know, you're just a little foam thing and you're you're going to go over the wave, which is pretty fun. Uh, when the wave's overhead high, you really shouldn't go over the wave. You should go down the wave at an angle, kind of like a surfboard. Otherwise, you'll do what I did, which is catch like air for a minute as you effectively like take the boogie board off the side of a building. <laughs> you know, yes, you're and definitely supposed to ride down the wave, but off no, of it's I, really innovative. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I went. I for a second, I was like, "Oh my gosh, this wave is awesome!" And then I nosedived and like just straight forward cleared the wave, dove into the water, and then got uh kind of like held against the bottom of the ocean as w- the waves like churned yeah. over me. How would you explain the feeling of being uh, tossed by one of the bigger waves? Yeah, it's existentially terrifying. Uh, you, you you go a lot of things go through your head about like may, how humans maybe shouldn't be here <laughs> like I'm uh, out of my element yeah yeah very much so and i i, I was tossed or i i like nosedived under and then my the board kind of stayed facing forward down against the ground and the wave pulled my legs forward too so i ended up with like a what in uh skateboarding uh bail parlance would be like a scorpion um right oh i that, i don't I, you're the expert on skateboard oh, you haven't watched that rob deerdeck show a bunch of times where it, it's just nothing but it's like uh funny some videos but more people getting hit in the nuts uh and uh, uh what was that show called i'm not going to think of that show um all right so it's a it's a y- your body's making kind of the a c shape but the wrong direction yeah okay, <laughs> okay. i've been there and uh, it did something to my mid-back, and I had like a hitch in my mid-back for a few years after that. I asked years? my dad about it. Years! And I thought, I, I thought maybe I slipped a disc or something, and um, my dad said it would, it would go away. Worth and, it. You're, yeah. <laughs> the doctor said, it'll go away. Yeah, my and dad... You know what? My, in a few years, it did. 
It's sort of, I mean, I don't know. When I like bend my back backwards, I feel like there's a particular, there's a particular place that it seems to bend and easier. It's like I'm a creased piece of paper. It's like my back has a crease in it. It's like a little memento of your time here. (laughs) I asked him about it. And and here's the thing, uh, listeners, about uh, having a a, uh, doctor father is... Uh, un, uh, you might imagine that everything becomes a very detailed diagnosis, but kind of the opposite happens, which is a doctor knows when something's actually serious. So a lot of stuff that in a in a non-doctor family might become a very big deal in a doctor family is just not a big deal at all. A lot of things are just, oh, here, take you know two Sudafed and you'll be fine. Well, we try to minimize the diagnosis freakouts at my house with three boys. It's very much like you have to be in apparent life distress before I'm going to take severe action to fix the problem. That's a, that's a, a reasonable pragmatic approach um given the, what i have learned so far about the the level of constant disaster that happens at your house right you know say you're just running full speed with your eyes closed that kind of behavior yeah, pillowcase uh, on your head and i think it's a good uh it's a perhaps a stereotypical divide where abigail is scooping them up and nurturing them and I'm like, ah, just spit on it. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> I don't know if that's a remedy, but it sounds like it. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm a similar way. Shannon is Shannon is uh, always worried. And I, it, it, I vacillate somewhat between being the stable voice of reason and being the grumpy voice of stop freaking out. Um, but that's a that's a good line to have both my parents were um had medical degrees so i kind of had two parents that said the equivalent the doctor equivalent of just spit on it which is like take one of these three medicines and you'll be fine later um i remember uh getting uh chicken pox and having to still practice violin that day um for i don't know whatever now that's and a, half a or real whatever childhood memory right there yeah itching uh been practicing and like all morning, you know, the, the hour and a half, two hour violin practice. How much did you practice box. violin every day? Two hours. Most, uh, most of, I would say from the age of probably 10 to 16, I practiced like 630 to 830 every morning. Is that standard? I, you know, I have no idea really. I think that, um, when I, I well for a professional violinist, right? Like somebody, uh, my understanding is there's four to six hours of practice a day. Like that's just kind of what you do. Uh, you go you go to work by practicing uh, a tremendous amount. Um, and when I went to summer uh, the encore summer uh, music camp for violinists in uh, Hudson, Ohio, back when I was twelve, um, practice was from eight a.m. to twelve p.m. and then you had lunch. Um, so, I mean, I guess it's standard. Um, <clears throat> a few follow-up questions. Okay. Was your door locked from the outside during this period, and were you allowed to eat 
prior to having finished up to two hours of practice. I oh ha ha! Uh, but uh, I do remember uh, breakfast happening after. <laughs> <laughs> For what I mean, worth. incidentally. But I it was uh, you wake up and you do. Um, you, I, I would practice in my dad's study. Which uh, was generally used to uh, uh, take up to, to put medical books. That was the room full of medical books, and no one went in that room really, except for me to practice. And I I would play scales and arpeggios for thirty minutes while looking at the spines of medical books, and then I would do etudes for thirty minutes, and then I would practice my whatever piece I was working on performing for the next thirty minutes hour, and then by nine there would be breakfast. I don't know. That sounds reasonable. Now, the the biggest unanswered question to me, uh, and I ask myself this all the time, is why did I just like not? <laughs> I have no idea why I just didn't. Some like why did I not just stop? Sometimes, and I think that uh, as a kid, it didn't really occur to me. I was like, okay, well, I practice from here to here, and I don't remember like balancing the risk reward of if I just put the violin away and go outside, what's going to happen? Right. Like I don't like, am I ready for whatever fight will occur if I refuse to practice? Right. I just don't remember that really coming up by the time, uh, I was practicing six thirty eight thirty every day. I think it was just, it was enough of my, uh, my routine in other ways that it just took place. And I enjoyed it for, you know, for the most part, I think. Yeah, I <clears throat> I think I was similar. I don't know what makes a kid not like that. Maybe it's just personality. I don't it probably has something to do with parental raising style, but I was very um punishment averse. Uh, uh I, I don't know how it occurred in my brain. Risk aversion. I think it was just risk aversion. And was so it con- conflict aversion? Mm, no. I don't okay. think I've ever had problems with conflict, although I don't seek it out in all cases. But it was mostly risk, and and I think that's still true. But punishments or threats of punishments were very effective because I didn't want to take the risk of any of the plethora of outcomes that could occur from anything remotely out of bounds. Mm. Now, I don't know how I reconciled this with my physical risk-taking. Well, I mean, you're not going to get grounded for... Well, you might not get grounded for jumping off the roof onto the trampoline and then onto the ground. No, I didn't. I think it is that it was under my complete control versus no one whether that risk paid off. I was in control and... I didn't have to wonder what the other person was doing. You know, gravity behaves in a certain way, uh, as does other aspects of physics. And as long as maybe I was just at peace with the results, or maybe I just trusted myself more than the caprices of others. I see. The, you, you, you're firmly in the hands of gravity and your own judgment <laughs> at that point. Exactly. You get it. Nobody, nobody to blame but yourself if you break your arm. Very much so. 
I did not practice two hours a day. I played the clarinet. I mean, I played the piano, but, you know, everybody learns piano, I guess. Uh, I, I, no. Well, <laughs> I to the piano. degree that I learned it, you, maybe you did as well. It, maybe so. I remember real... your brother being good at piano. I don't ever remember seeing you play piano, but uh, I, he I'm, got into, I'm getting you off track. Yeah, playing sort of chords and, and uh, ad-libbing. And I was, I'm more ended at the, I finished my third grade piano book type of situation. Anyway, oh, yeah. I did play the clarinet into college. I don't know if we mentioned that before. But I was very averse to practicing, and my parents weren't very insistent on it. Also, when I would practice at my house, within a minute, my sister would be just complaining to no end that it was the worst sound in the world and why does he have to practice all the time? And so I would use that and the pain that it was to practice with braces for long periods of time on a, a instrument where you have to grip the mouthpiece. Um, I'd use a lot of excuses, but mostly I just, if I was, if I could be good enough at something, and use less time to be as good as I was expected to be. That's what I would do. And that's not a... I don't think that says anything great about my personality, but that's definitely how I operated. I mean, efficiency is attractive up until the point where you need to be... where where it being... where you need to get above a certain, like, competence level, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I kind of reached that with violin. There, there's definitely, and I think a lot of uh, uh, skills that require practice are like this. You eventually get to a point where you can pretty much do the thing. Uh, and I think that at that point, uh, effort ends up being the differentiator. Like... Um, and I think that, I don't know, I have a lot of feelings about talent and what, how much people rely on talent or, or blame talent or, or credit talent or whatever. And I think that, uh, for me, uh, of course it's hard to differentiate too much cause like I was young enough that I don't know what it would have been like to not practice all that time. Um, but eventually I got to a point where like in high school where I could pretty much play <laughs> stuff all right. And, uh, and then that's eventually what I think one of the things that led me to kind of falling off in college and stuff other than, you know, just not wanting to put in the time at college was I was all right. Like I could, I can, I can still like sight read a bunch of stuff and I, I could perform with, you know, a quartet or something. I couldn't like do a very complicated concert piece, uh, without a significant amount of more work, but like you reach this kind of like, uh, okayness plateau. Uh, at which point you have to decide to really work to get better than that. Um, but you get to, you know, sort of riding the bikes uh, level of, eh, I, I can pretty much do this. You there? Yeah. Did something happen? It sounds like your microphone cut out. No, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, I was yes. just talking. It was house things. Oh, 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 oh. okay. Um, I wasn't saying anything important. As if, um, <laughs> I wrote down enthusiast adjacent earlier. Um, oh. That's 
sort of applies to this too. Uh, being out there next to the real surfing surfing boys uh, with your with your surfboard, uh, thinking like you know I like this stuff, but those guys those over over there they're they're you know the real surfers. And I remember going to uh, <clears throat> going to uh, all state or all um, or a concerto competition or whatever, and feeling like those were the real practicing music kids and i was just like some guy um maybe it's like imposter syndrome to some degree but also just like i did not uh feel like i was a uh one of those kids like the classical music kid even though i, I think to- totally was well yeah that it must be a combo and this is interesting because i've thought i've encountered this a lot where it has to be partly imposter syndrome, which I'm still trying to totally define. And for anyone who's not familiar, and correct me if this isn't what you're talking about, is that no matter how good you are at something, at a job, at a task, you have this vague feeling that you really don't know what you're doing. And at any moment, somebody's going to test you and figure out that you really don't know, and you shouldn't be there, and you aren't capable to be doing what it is that you're supposed to be good at. Is that what we're at? Precisely. Okay. And then there is that (laughs) feeling that those people around you, though you may be as capable at the task as them or close to, that they like it in a way you don't, or they are committed to it in a way that you're not quite identifying with. I felt this in engineering school where I was getting similar grades to these people, but it was like life to them. You know, they, they, it wasn't a joke that they liked solving certain equations or doing quirky, you know, projects. It was what they liked to do. And I didn't, I wasn't there. And so I, I had that, very feeling, you know, for one in school. But yeah, it's an interesting combo. I don't know how to pull it apart always. Right. Like imposter syndrome is exactly, you've made a good distinction there because imposter syndrome in this case is not, I guess, what I was talking about, right? Because I did feel I was pretty good at violin and, uh, and I knew what I was doing or like, uh, Gosh, any any number of other you know areas, uh, uh, or or maybe something that isn't even skill related. The second example, whatever we're going to call that, is is still there. Like uh, maybe maybe you go to summer camp, right? And like you're at summer camp, and may, you're not like uh, there to goof on summer camp. You're not a um, you don't have like necessarily a bad attitude about it, but you get there and you're like, oh, okay, I'm here because I'm here at summer camp, but those people over there, those are summer camp people, capital <laughs> S, capital C, capital P there. They've got the bandanas. They've got the, the, um, the Birkenstocks. They're in it to win it. Uh, Birkenstocks very, were key to the summer camp people's wardrobe. I, I mean, I, I'm just inventing a, a cartoonish summer camp boy in my, uh, but I mean the, the, uh, the very, the feeling of there being some other people that are way more, uh, bought into whatever it is that you're doing than you are um, is something that is has pervaded many uh, different avenues that I've gone down over the so years. So how do you and I don't not know- let that discourage you? 
I don't know. It's not necessarily discouraging, but I always wonder, like, if I'm missing out on something by not fully buying it. Well, you know, it's it's just like imposter syndrome. There's a number of possible causes and, and effects and motivations. Like, I don't know if uh, that is, like, some cynicism that I personally can't escape that is, like, in, infecting my viewpoint in a way. Like, or if... Or if it's like imposter syndrome, or it's like people say what if the imposter syndrome, like everybody thinks that they're getting away with it by being there, right? So like maybe those people are like, they don't see themselves as true camp people or, you know, real music they've people just, or whatever. W- they've just put more effort into appearing the part while they are like, oh man, I got to really sell this. I'm not supposed to be here. No, or maybe they don't even think about it, right? Like maybe they just like... uh you know, they they don't have like a, a inherent aversion to Birkenstocks like I do, and they just bought some Birkenstocks. Like there, there doesn't necessarily have to be a uh, uh, a, a motive. Like they might not be thinking about the the uh, the appearance in the same way. Like cert, sure, like maybe they're they are like f- focusing on appearance, and that's why they're there. But there's a lot of different, uh, I guess, reasons that one might feel. Uh, not part of a enthusiast or like a subculture in general. Um, I don't know what that, which we should call that. It's not, it's not imposter syndrome. It's like, uh, it's buy-in. It's lack of buy-in. Enthusiast syndrome. syndrome? <laughs> Enthusiast. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, a very confusing phrase, which I think really uh, underlies the sentiment. So, okay. Unenthusiast syndrome. <laughs> Oh no, that's just sad. Yeah, that makes me sound like I'm not excited to be there. I'm excited to be there sometimes. Uh, well, if you are uh, an enthusiast and you're not suffering from imposter syndrome, make sure to bring people in around you and be accessible. <laughs> it would help. Yeah, that's that's true. If there's one thing to overcome with that, it's it's maybe overcoming thinking about it at all and just being nice and listening to people. There's a lot of things like that I could have done when I was younger. Uh, I, I've got to, um, I'm going to take a hard left here into the world of, uh, to the world of dollars and cents. Dollars and cents. Um, all right. I'll this, allow it, I guess. <laughs> this is Cameron and Brock's, um, budget corner, money corner. Ooh. Uh, do you recall uh, the the? I have a spreadsheet. I, uh, I do. It's I, sorry. Your, that was <laughs> your life spreadsheet. That was not the one. I interrupted myself. I meant to say, do you recall us talking about steak ratio? Well, yeah, I do remember there being spreadsheets involved, but steak ratio is solidified now as a actual term. Right. So, like, I've made a steak ratio sort of um sort of draft worksheet uh steak ratio listeners being the concept of um of relative cost to your lifestyle of something right so they um in you uh it was well let me give you an example so maybe you uh, uh and also it's not a ratio and it's not really about steak which makes the term just perfect um maybe you buy uh colgate Right, you buy a you buy a, a a regular ass toothpaste. Maybe you went to Costco and you got two Colgate tubes for five dollars. Ooh boy, those savings, right? 
So that's two dollars and fifty cents for a tube of of Colgate at Costco. Um, now, how how many how long would it would it take you to roll through a tube of Colgate, Brock? Do you Assuming think? it's Costco sized because it's probably bigger than normal. Plus, it's in a two pack. Right, I, six months is that right? Okay. All right, no, no. I, I, believe me, I have a. I literally have a spreadsheet. I can put that in here. All right, so we got two per year at two fifty. Um, your your uh, your uh, cost is uh, uh, five dollars a year on toothpaste. Okay, uh, your steak <laughs> your steak ratio, uh, which I am currently defining as a cost per day. Um, it costs you a, a, approximately a penny a day for your crappy toothpaste. Um, now say your dentist says just a hypothetical here. Your dentist says, Hey, your gums are receding. You should go buy some, uh, some nicer toothpaste, some Sensodyne. You got to go over to that. The part of the toothpaste aisle where the boxes are, are shiny and they have more expensive packaging. I am drawn to the shiny packaging, like yeah, a so- fish seeing a lure in the water. So yeah, you 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 uh, indulge in that primitive uh, primitive part of your brain that's excited about light reflecting off of cardboard, and uh, you walk over and, and, and you you uh, you if you're me, break out into a cold sweat because you've moved away from the three dollar toothpaste and now you're looking at the six dollar toothpaste. Not only is it six dollars, but it is a smaller tube of toothpaste. So say say you're, you're that say that tube of toothpaste is half the size of your Costco uh mm. your co- Costco tube that's the size of like a a container of like floor caulk um so say you got a instead of your your Costco forearm toothpaste tube you have a little 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 shiny guy and it uh it it's 6 dollars and there's four per year that's 24 dollars a year and now you're paying 7 cents a day for toothpaste instead of 1 cent a day okay I'm terrified. Yeah. So point, the point of this exercise is that t- the difference between $24 and $5 per year is effectively meaningless for the vast majority of the populace. That is $19. That is like one day when you're driving home and you decide to go get you, – you go to Chili's for that after work special and you get yourself a, a – a, what do you get at Chili's? A Bloomin' Onion and a and – a, a margarita hat um that's definitely what i get at chili's (laughs) you gotta live it up um that's live it up that's their motto live it up at chili's Chili's onion and then double margarita double just one for each i just got off work and it's midnight (laughs) just put that put that blooming onion in the middle put a margarita in each of my hands and i'll i'll just lean over and (laughs) um get my face in there so that's nineteen dollars. You've you've just covered the cost of a fancy toothpaste for the year through your nineteen dollar trip to to post work chilies. This is this is the thing that I've been trying to think about more is um, actual not the price tag of something, but actual relative cost of something over the course of a year. So it immediately occurs to me that it has to be tied somehow to. The frequency and of use, or if not the frequency of use, the part of your life that it is. So in your Chili's example, it's a perfect example of the least 
long-term impactful action, which is that you didn't really even build up intending to go to Chili's or it wasn't a major event that you could tie to it. It was really, I would hesitate to say a mistake because that's just judging your margarita onion (laughs) choice, but it was incidental and not remembered probably and doesn't stay with you. Um, Right. So, Toothpaste isn't particularly memorable, but in this case, it should improve your life. And if not improve your life physically, you're doing it every day. And so it could even give you a slight mental boost to know that you're using the shiny package for no extra effort. Um, Yes, so I think that that's really hard to define. But I think that's key to the stake ratio program, right? Life value, which is a bit intangible. Well, yeah, it's it's there's a there's a lifestyle quality component that's like you know relative cost to boost in lifestyle quality uh, is a thing, and not you can't also can't discount that that uh, sweet self esteem boost you're going to get when the dentist asks you if you're using the Sensodyne and you say yes, sir or ma'am, um, but. Uh, I mean, I'll take whatever I can get in terms of making the dentist proud of me, I think. Um, I mean, he's got a drill that goes into your mouth. You do what he says. Um, but, like, the, uh, the the frequency is a huge one, right? Like, so going to Chili's once it, for your $19 thing, uh, here I just plug that in. So, like, once, whatever. But say you go to Chili's every Friday and you, and you, you just uh, dive into that onion head first uh, every every Friday. At the end of the year, you will have spent, uh, well, let me put it into the work week column. So like, oh, it broke. Never mind. All right. So if you did that once <laughs> a week, you would go, I need to fix my spreadsheet. Um, you would you would be have spent $988 by the end of the year at Chili's, which comes out to $2.71 a day. Can that support, tell me? Support your Chili's lifestyle. Does that convert how many tubes of toothpaste that would equal well um let's see uh considering that it's seven cents a day for toothpaste and it's two dollars and 71 cents a day for chilies um let's see uh, oh that didn't work see now you're making me live spreadsheet on a podcast which is no, the worst I thing just that anyone's... You, I, it's just a future feature um, oh, I see. Okay. Well, uh, it's, for it's, the it's, spreadsheet, I want it to be feature creep, but I just feel like it'd be useful I to see. interchange any of the individually added items so you can see their relative value to each other easily. You know, mm. your Chili's habit, your your double margarita onion habit is right. putting you out a hundred tubes of toothpaste a year. I see. I see. Um, well, I mean, you divide $2.71 by $0.07 cents on your own time. I guess that it's a lot. I think it, I, I just did it. Wait a minute. It's three, about 387% or times, I guess. No, wait. What? 387 <laughs> You want me to use a calculator, man? <laughs> I, I literally have a, a giant sheet of potential calculator uh, things. I, I just I can't do it under pressure. Um, it's too much pressure. So I've got other uh, other uh, other uh, examples here that are hopefully also not 
super boring. Um, you're uh, so say you uh, um, uh, you you want to buy a latte every morning, right? Like every workday, that's three fifty a day. Uh, uh, every workday for a latte, the end of the year, Monday through Friday on a workday, you've bought a latte for three fifty. You spent eight hundred seventy five dollars at the end of the year. Now, what is interesting about that is the Chili's thing, right? Like that's almost the same amount as Chili's. So one could compare, you could balance, where if you wanted to, the relative uh, pleasure of a $3.50 latte every morning versus a $19 Friday Chili's blowout. <laughs> right? It's about the, same, about the same cost when it comes down to it at the end of the year. Um, you see? Okay, yeah, I'm seeing this. And so it's key that we you don't use this the steak ratio concept to become an obsessed miser where every time your wife <laughs> comes home with the gallon jug of milk you're like mhm <laughs> and she's like oh, no, why that, are you looking at me you're like well i've done a few calculations and i we agreed on a quart of milk a week and as you please, can see this compares favorably to the toothpaste situation and as per agreed upon latte situation and um, i i happen to have seen a latte cup in your car this morning <laughs> and uh upon testing it did appear to be oh that had the milk the the remains did have a milk ratio uh consistent with that of a latte <laughs> and not of a a drip coffee uh, no, that's not, that's not, right. we're not, so, uh, I'm not trying to become the money police, but I think that it is interesting to draw like uh, costs across categories and time and frequency. Yes. And so there, there is cost. an element where you get to decide and plan. So there is planning. Hopefully you're not as draconian as all of that. But the very point of the ratio, as I understand it, is the is the very opposite, which is that once you look through all of this and sort of see the relative value that you're getting and make some basic decisions, your obsession with the money details of a lot of things should vanish and your happiness should increase, right? Because you're focusing on value instead of saving an arbitrary amount of money, which is there's never enough money to save. You could have always spent less. So it should free yeah. you ideally, right? It's liber yeah, it's it's ideal ideally this spreadsheet is liberating. Sure. It's that <laughs> it's no that one. it's that everything every number is bigger than zero, right? Like the you're it is hard to save like you said, because saving is uh, something where uh, you could eat a can of beans every day and save maximum. So it's hard to feel like it's if you get in the wrong mindset, it's easy to feel like you aren't saving enough no matter what you do. Um, so it does. It gives you this like relative baseline for another example. So say you buy um, so a, a pound of coffee a week, mm. which I do uh, to support my coffee habit, as it were. Um, and I buy, if I bought the shitty coffee, uh, from Trader Joe's that comes in like a cardboard canister and tastes like coffee more or less, uh, and it's $7 for one of those, one of those guys. If I buy the fancy coffee from, uh, from, uh, Intelligentsia or Dark Matter, one of the other high 
quality uh, Chicago coffee establishments. That's a $13 thing of coffee. Uh, but I'm buying one of those a week either way. And at the end of the year, it's $364 for the shitty coffee, $676 for the fancy coffee. So is it worth $300 a year to me to buy the fancy coffee? But you know that's a hard – those are hard numbers because you don't conceive of yearly spending um, on a daily basis. That's like saying it's 24,000 steps – somewhere and you're like i don't know what you mean but i i don't i'm not saying that too negatively because you can compare other things relative prices at the same time so you have a comparison right i have a so the steak ratio for the shitty coffee is a dollar the steak ratio for the fancy coffee is a buck 85 and then we go down the line here and we see that a daily latte, $3.50 latte, which does not include weekend coffee, right? That's just one per workday on the way to work or whatever. $2.40. So there's your, you know, mm. there's a little bit little bit of relative value for you. Take, stick that in your Whoa. spreadsheet pipe. And I'm smoke putting it. it. I need a spreadsheet pipe. I'm realizing right now. <laughs> um, uh, or uh, let's see. I mean, uh, I know you've got other examples. I do. I've probably beaten this. This dead Let's horse. Let's get one uh, more. All right, one more. Say you have a um ten. How how far is your commute? Let's do this the right way. How far in Pensacola? I judge by time. Sure. There's not really traffic, so it's not quite thirty minutes. Thirty minutes. So we're gonna say we'll give it. We'll say you, it's twenty miles to your work. That's all fair. right. Um, and it and you say your car gets uh. Uh, actually, I'm just going to leave these numbers here because I don't want to do this math again. <laughs> We're going to say you have 10 miles from work. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. my old working area where I drive 10 miles to. Uh-huh. Yeah, you go 10, and when the, that odometer gets to 10, boop, you're there. Uh, 10 miles to work. Say your car gets 25 miles to the gallon, uh, and say gas is $3 a gallon. Uh, you're going to spend how much money do you think per year? And then the, this is extra good because there's so many units. It's hard to like do this off the top of your head. How much money do you think you spend on gas in a year with a 20 mile, mile per hour, uh, to mile per gallon car, uh, a 20 mile per 20 mile round trip to work? Uh, okay. So Just don't think about it too per hard. Year? You, if you math this and get it right, then that's not, that's <laughs> not, that's not the point. <laughs> The point is, uh, so it's $800. See, see, if you have a 20 mile per hour or 20 mile round trip, it only costs you $300 a year in gas at $3 a gallon in a 25 mile per, hour, mile per gallon car. Oh. Now, say you, uh, say you upgrade it. So you, could, you pay $3,000 uh, $3, more to get a car that gets 30 miles per gallon. Uh, at that, at the end of the year, you will have spent two hundred fifty dollars on gas on your work commute. You only will have saved fifty dollars to go from twenty five to thirty miles per gallon. So this is a question of whether or not you think it would improve your life to buy the more expensive car based on gas mileage. Yeah, I mean it's okay, it's because we got to bring it back to the value statement, which is very right. critical to this. Right, exactly. It's eighty-two cents a day versus sixty-eight cents a day to have a car that's five mile per, mile per well, gallon. Well, I need to efficient. research the what would be the word for that? I want to say titular 
steak of the right. steak ratio. Well, I've got good news for you. In in this increasingly excruciating <laughs> spreadsheet segment of the podcast, uh, say you want to say you want to ribeye dinner uh, every two weeks. Okay, that's, that's reasonable. A, that's eighteen dollars with a steak. We'll say, right? Per You're person. Have, per, whoa! I'm just uh, hey, uh, really? we're not getting trash steaks. Oh, I know. I'm saying we are getting trash steaks. That's the oh, that's the relative. Right. That's the ratio. Go ahead. Um, all right, so you 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 want you're gonna buy uh, two and a half pounds of on sale six or seven dollar pound uh, ribeye. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna bear you're gonna uh, Indiana Jones your way right under that door, bare minimum, last second uh, sale steak. Um, you do that every two weeks. That is a dollar twenty eight a day to support your 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 crappy steak. Um, now. Say you want to say you want a New York strip every two weeks, okay? Uh-huh. So New York, say it's a twelve dollar a pound steak. You're going to get two steaks. You're going to spend twenty four dollars. That's a dollar seventy one a day to upgrade for New York strip. So roughly a fifty cent a day upgrade to get a New York strip every two weeks. But and here's where it gets interesting. Say you want to like really rock it, but you only want to rock it once a month. You want to get a thirty-six dollar. You get a dry aged. You really, you really go for it, right? Thirty-six bucks a steak, once a month. That's a dollar eighteen. That's the cheapest of the three options. So time affects money. <laughs> yeah, frequency. <laughs> Fre- frequency is important, and like maybe if you can just hold off on your ribeye dinner. Hey, can you come up with? Okay, here's your task. Can you come up with some kind of independent variable that we can assign um, <clears throat> maybe zero through one as a decimal to how much value this thing means to our life? Oh, or I see. Generated or as a variable we add? I don't know, but this is very important. If we can come That's up with true. this variable, mm. th- this is everything. That is the magic tut. That is the magic number, right? That's the that's the magic. Uh, this is like, like unifying f- gravity into the rest of the forces of physics. That's true because, like, I, I, I getting like the the pre cut pack of the thin ribeye is pretty. Uh, it's pretty pretty bland sort of experience, but like going over to the very far end of the meat case and pointing at the dry age stuff and getting it all right. wrapped up. And that's then- that's that's a that's how a, important is steak to me? <laughs> Spoiler, I mean, I'm gonna guess close to one. Right, 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 right. In this case, so okay. also, I know because our listeners are super engaged by this protracted mm-hmm. conversation <laughs> yeah. that they should just email all of the things that they're wondering about, and we'll steak ratio it. I will. Oh, I'd be more than happy. I'd be thrilled to do that. And we'll uh, tell you what your personal values should be. I mean, that's Oh, I right. see. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. That column is is something we should that's completely under our control, but the rest is is up for uh up for suggestion. Uh you can come propose uh something <laughs> that you think you want to spend money on and we'll tell you how we'll much it costs you. We'll just characterize you in a certain way 
of our choosing and then mm. be done. That that makes sense. I, I, I see no downside to that. Uh, I also put on work lunch on here. If you buy lunch at work every day, every work day, and it's $10, by the end of the year, you will have spent $2,500. You're paying $7 a day uh, on average. That's the most expensive thing on this list by far to eat lunch and not eat how many? How many cheap lattes is that? Uh, um, it's roughly three times the cost of being a latte every workday. I mean, you could, yeah. Uh, all right. I've, I've, I've exhausted my spreadsheet. Cameron and Brock at gmail.com. If you made it this far in the podcast, you definitely have that. You definitely, your judgment is, is questionable enough. Suspect. That, and you may need your our time. help determining yeah. your value. There's going to be a time <laughs> element true. added to his spreadsheet. And if you're spending over an hour listening to this podcast, then you may need to uh, reevaluate your life. You know what, though? This podcast, zero cost. So if I plug that into the spreadsheet, infinity value, in- infinite value, divide by zero error. There's too much value per <laughs> we dollar. Did it. You heard it. it there is mm-hmm. too much value in this podcast.